0: Hey, everyone, you're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert. We're discussing weed today, or cannabis, or marijuana. Let me introduce you to Dr. Emily Dufton. Emily's a trained historian who was awarded her PhD from George Washington University. She's also a professional writer, and her work has appeared in Time Magazine, uh, on CNN, the Smithsonian Magazine, uh, as well as the Washington Post. So Emily's new book is called Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. And it's published by Basic Books. Emily, can you share a bit about your background and uh, how you got interested in the history of marijuana? Sure.
1: Uh, I started grad school in 2008. And I came in really interested in investigating questions about social activism in the United States. You know, essentially, what made grassroots activists you know, effective or not. And as I went through my classwork and as I went through my comprehensive exams, I had always had kind of an outside interest in drug history. I loved reading about it. I loved uh, understanding the lens through which we could, you know, kind of view drug use as um, a way to understand American history and American culture. And I realized uh, as I was working towards starting to write my dissertation in 2010, two years before the first legalization law was passed, that there was one short segment in one of my favorite drug history books, which was uh, Martin Torgoff's Can't Find My Way Home, where he talked a little bit about the parent movement, which was this activist movement that was opposed to the decriminalization of marijuana in the 1970s. He talked a little bit about it. So does David Musto and the American disease, but there wasn't too Mm. much. And I thought, well, wait a second. You know, I grew up in the nineties and I was very familiar with (laughs) anti-marijuana programs and cartoons and all this other stuff. And I thought, is this where it got its start? Is the parent movement where this all began? And as I started researching it, I realized this was, A wonderful example of very powerful and very effective grassroots activism. So that became the basis of my dissertation, which I then expanded on to tell the whole story of both for and anti-marijuana activism from the 1960s to today.
0: So the chapter that jumped out uh, at me, chapter four, is called You Won't Have to Be Paranoid Anymore. Uh, And so how does this fit into into the larger narrative?
1: Isn't that a great quote? I love that. Uh, <laughs> that comes directly from a really fascinating character uh, named Stephen Kafori. Kafori is one of the my favorite people who I profiled uh, in Grassroots, and I was able to conduct a, a lot of interviews about over two dozen interviews with people who were involved in the movement for and against uh, decriminalization and legalization over the years. And Kafori just, he's great. He's still very active in Oregon state politics and was particularly active in the Portland area in the 1970s. So in 1972, after sort of in the wake of um, the Nixon Nixon's re-election and everything. There was this groundswell of democratic uh, participation in politics, particularly at the state level, and there were a lot of young people who got involved. Uh, particularly after the Schaefer Commission, the National Commission on Marijuana and uh, Drug Abuse, released its findings after a two-year study of cannabis use in the United States, that recommended, but not uh, that recommended decriminalization, but not legalization nationwide. Now, President Nixon, who had just been elected to a second term, was very opposed to the findings of the Schaefer Commission, and it was pretty obvious that there was no way that they were that he was going to allow for the implementation of decriminalization on a nationwide scale. But there were some people in states across the country who saw the Schaefer Commission's recommendations as basically, you know, the term we'd use today is actionable items, right? Mm. Stephen Kafori was one of these people. He's young at the time. He's in his 20s and he decides to run for state government in Oregon. He's uh, going door to door, uh, trying to generate votes for himself in the Portland area. And he notices that when he knocks on the door, a lot of young people, similar to his age, are terrified (laughs) to open the door because they're scared he's a cop. Um, So he can tell that people are rushing around inside trying to hide drug paraphernalia they open the door it smells like weed and it's very obvious that um marijuana is being used and that people are terrified about their use because they don't want to be arrested now oregon doesn't have as strict state laws as places say like texas or even california at the time but nonetheless it's still a problem so he starts making his constituents a, problem, uh, a promise, and he says, "You won't have to be paranoid anymore. If you elect me, I will pass decriminalization in the state of Oregon, and you won't have to fear, you know, a knock at the door every time, every time someone comes to visit you. If it's the cops, it'll be what a, a civil fine. It'll be like a traffic ticket as opposed to getting you arrested uh, and thrown into, and thrown into jail." So he's elected. It works. This promise really has a lot of power behind it. And he ends mm-hmm. up teaming up with some rather surprising people in the Oregon state legislature to pass decriminalization on a statewide scale in 1973. And Oregon becomes the first state in America to pass decriminalization. And it takes a long time for other states to catch up, a minimum of two years, but it really sets the standard and it uh, in no way surprised me that Oregon was one of the first states to adopt legalization. Then, in the 2010s, it already had that period of decriminalization uh, 40 years prior.
0: He sounds like a really fascinating character.
1: He's super cool, and he's still super active. He was um, after being involved in the Oregon State Legislature. He moved into education. He was very uh, prominent on the Oregon School Board. Um, he was a Peace Corps volunteer volunteer. He did all sorts of really cool stuff. And now I believe he's a lawyer working on environmental issues. So he remains really committed to a lot of the same <laughs> ideas and passions that drove him in the 1970s. He's, he's definitely cool.
0: <laughs> so he is essentially a, a pro marijuana activist. Um, in, in chapter eight, you talk a little bit about the parents, um, uh, the parent revolution And um, uh, I'm a parent, you're a parent. Uh, Is it fair to say that they were anti-marijuana activists?
1: It is fair, I think. And I I don't think that they would be opposed to that title either. Now, some of them had experience with uh, using cannabis earlier in their lives. And some of them, you know, used other intoxicants, they drank alcohol, they smoked cigarettes, things like that. But they were opposed to marijuana use, specifically by children. And that was really where it crossed the line for them. Um, The story of the parent movement begins in 1976, when a number of states had already decriminalized the possession of up to an ounce of cannabis. And Essentially, what was happening was there was also a very large growth in the paraphernalia industry, which Mm. was the sale of legal goods in order to enjoy or use or sell a still federally illegal product, which, of course, was the drug. This market in paraphernalia had really no controls over it. The stuff was available pretty much everywhere. Like you could buy high times at 7-Eleven. You could get bongs and pipes at local record stores. You could get rolling papers at the grocery store. Yeah. And the stuff was everywhere. There were no legal restrictions on the age of the individuals who could purchase this material. And it was um, considered kind of par for the course. If you went into a record store, there'd be paraphernalia. You know, no big deal. Uh, A mother in Atlanta, Georgia, or sort of outside of Atlanta, Georgia, grew concerned about this when she was throwing a 13th birthday party for her daughter. And there were a lot of kids kind of roaming around the backyard. um, And they didn't seem particularly, I guess, with it, (laughs) you might want to say. They were sort of... um, hiding in the bushes. There were uh, carloads of older teens driving by asking where the party was. And her daughter had changed her behavior a lot recently. She was no longer the sort of bubbly and engaged girl that the mother knew. She had become withdrawn. She'd become very private, very protective of her uh, personal space. And the mother was getting very concerned. And so after the party was over, she and her husband start searching around their backyard and they find you know, leftover roaches and (laughs) bottles of uh, wine coolers and all this other stuff. And they suddenly realized that this drug culture, that they had an idea was happening. Now, Georgia did not decriminalize, but police in Georgia were told to kind of reduce their efforts against that drug and focus more on other harder substances like heroin and things like that. Uh, but the drug culture that they had heard was sort of growing in other places had not only come to Georgia, but had literally followed them home and was in the backyard of their 13-year-old daughter. And that was frightening for them. Uh, the mother's name was uh, Marcia Manit Shuhard, but she went by the nickname Keith for reasons I've never totally understood. Uh, but Schuhard was a researcher. She had a PhD in British literature And she started looking into all the federal information about the effects of cannabis on individuals. And all the information was pretty much about adults. And it kind of made it seem like there were no terrible effects. Um, Obviously, the information from the 1930s was slightly different. But information in more previous decades uh, didn't make it seem like such a big deal but she was terrified because there was some information about the effects of cannabis use on adolescent bodies that warned of terrifying things. Um, It suggested that cannabis could render children infertile, uh, that it would destroy chromosomes and would affect generations to to come afterwards. And she had nothing to compare it to. Uh, Of course, so she's reading this stuff. She knows that her daughter's smoking pot and she's absolutely terrified of the outcomes so she starts to sort of mobilize against it, and I feel as though some people have looked back on the parents the parent movement activists as kind of like the debbie downers of the 1970s but I think as as parents ourselves like if I've, I mean my kid's almost three he's hasn't gotten into too much bad stuff beyond. Peppa Pig, which can get kind of irritating after a while, but she's not so bad. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you become a parent and you have a kid and, and you realize the kid's getting into stuff you're not super psyched about, um, it made me somewhat sympathetic to their cause. And so I realized that, wow, there's a real story to tell here about them, especially because of how powerful their movement became and how quickly it became because they started rallying against the forces of decriminalization and especially the forces of the paraphernalia market that not only explicitly marketed to children, but were completely unprepared for the response that these parents gave.
0: So you said this parent movement uh, kicked off in 76. So how did it intersect uh, with the uh, Reagan revolution and the just say no uh, war on drugs?
1: Ah, that is a fascinating story. So Between 76 and May of 1980, before the election of 1980, before Reagan comes to the White House, the parent movement is really gathering steam. Uh, As I said, the drug culture was expanding quite rapidly, as was the paraphernalia market. By 1977, the paraphernalia market was worth about $250 million, which was about the equivalent of $1 billion today. It was extraordinary, the amount of stuff that was being sold. And it's it's not... (laughs) one might argue that dissimilar to the legal marijuana market today where it's just like make as much stuff as possible get it out there and profit while you can because who knows how long this is going to last um so there's just a bunch of stuff being made and some of the stuff is is absurd there was like the um the busby which is a frisbee with a pipe in it so you could like literally puff puff pass with your friends um bongs that are shaped like spaceships i mean just all this like really wacky stuff that does seem to appeal quite explicitly to children right Uh, um, a baby bottle that's actually a pipe you know all this other stupid stuff (laughs) right like things that paraphernalia manufacturers clearly were not thinking through entirely Uh, so a lot of parents get involved by 1980 there are over 3,000 individual parent groups with memberships you know numbering what a dozen to several dozen members they're nationwide they're in every state they have a lot of power and by may of 1980 they start their own uh washington-based lobbying organization called the national federation of parents for drug-free youth located right across the border from dc in silver spring maryland Mm. and they essentially start this organization because they need kind of an organizing factor, an umbrella factor for these 3,000 parent groups that are located nationwide. They want to start talking more to national leaders rather than state leaders. And when Reagan uh, wins the election a few months later in November and then comes to the White House in January 1981, they are essentially perfectly poised, without even really, you know, planning on it. They're perfectly poised to influence how Nancy Reagan t- takes on the platform of adolescent drug abuse prevention. Now, it's really important to remember that when Nancy Reagan came to Washington D.C. in January of 1981, she is immensely unpopular. <laughs> like people, people can't stand her. Uh, she was called a frivolous social climber, the likes of Lady Macbeth, uh, Mm -hmm. because of her time as the, uh, first lady of, uh, the state of California when her husband was governor there. Uh, she's seen as frivolous. She's spending too much money on things like her $10,000 inaugural ball gown, uh, when the United States is sliding into recession, she just seems like so out of touch. And, um, Oh, just unlikable. <laughs> so she needs a platform that's going to make her seem maternal and warm and caring and lovable. And what's better than keeping the kids off drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So parent activists, based uh, with the with the National Federation of Parents for Drug Free Youth the (NFP), get to her very very quickly, and they say, "We have this movement. We've been building it for four years. We're opposed to the decriminalization." Uh, of marijuana, or opposed to adolescent drug use of all kinds. This essentially could be a great platform for you. She, she hires a staff that is very amenable to this idea. She takes it on and announces it later on in 1981 that this is going to be her platform, and it really goes from there. She becomes the leading face of it, and it becomes a very, very symbiotic relationship between the White House and the parent movement. The parent movement now has a national thrust uh, coming from Washington, D.C. And Nancy Reagan's reputation is salvaged because she absorbs and ultimately, of course, usurps the platform of these parent activists. It's, uh, they really feed into each other.
0: (laughs) I mean, I've always found Nancy Reagan and the Reagan revolution pretty interesting. I grew up in the 1980s and I, I suppose that, that's the period of the book where you're talking about the fall of cannabis, right? Yeah. So can you sketch for us a little bit about this rise, the second rise, uh, and and when it really kicked off in in earnest?
1: Yeah. And the second rise is very much precipitated by the fall. So To backtrack a little bit, between 73 and 78, a dozen states decriminalize the personal possession of up to an ounce of pot. And this is huge because like a third of the country lives in these states. And some of them are surprising, like Alaska, which actually uh, decriminalized through constitutional state amendment, uh, or Mississippi, uh, Minnesota, like states that have not exactly embraced legalization today, but were very uh, amenable to the idea of decriminalization in the 70s. Now, when the Reagans come into the White House, of course, they have control over state drug and alcohol budgets because the federal government controls the block grants that filter down to the states that essentially say that you are allowed to use these massive amounts of federal dollars for whatever programs that you like, but they're basically kind of dictated by what's coming down from Washington. And Washington says that if you have decriminalized, we will not give you the money that you were expecting. Mm. So states say oh, (laughs) how much is decriminalization really worth to us? Is it worth the several million dollars we're getting from Washington, D.C.? No, it's not. So by virtue of controlling the purse strings, Washington and the... Reagan administration's real focus on transforming uh, drug use in the United States, especially marijuana use, from something that was tacitly accepted and considered kind of an, adult, an adult's right to do in the privacy of their own home into something that had no federal support whatsoever, was obviously going to be targeted much more by law enforcement because the Reagan administration was very heavy on you know, these law enforcement approaches to uh, marijuana use. And that was the fall. So Mm-hmm. Every single one of those decriminalization laws were overturned uh, by the early 1980s, and uh, pot once again really went underground. So you can see coverage of it in High Times, which is an extraordinary chronicle of this entire area from when it uh, entire era, excuse me, from when it started publishing in '74 on. Uh, so all of a sudden, it doesn't become this celebration of decriminalization. There's a lot of stories about how to um, home grow. like very privately. (laughs) Like, do you have a corner in your basement? Here's how you do it. It really literally goes underground. So this is the fall. But what happens to make cannabis rise again in the United States is the participation and involvement of the marijuana rights movement with the HIV, AIDS, and gay rights movement in the mid-1980s into the early 1990s. And this is like one of my all-time favorite moments of history to study, and it just shows how nothing ever happens in isolation. There there are no vacuums in history. Everything is always kind of tied into each other. So in the mid-1980s, especially in places like San Francisco, the HIV-AIDS epidemic is starting to really hit home, and you have dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of people dying. And there are two particular activists in San Francisco whose names are Dennis Perron, who uh, just died two years ago. And her nickname is Brownie Mary, but her name was literally Mary Jane Rathbun, which is like a moment of, of historical kismet that's just too perfect to, to to explain any other way. But Brownie Mary and Dennis Perron um, are both... Uh, cannabis users. They're both uh, very sympathetic to the gay rights movement and they're both terrified of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And they essentially start treating their friends and lovers and uh, you know, sort of extended family members in the Castro district of San Francisco with cannabis for people who are struggling with the symptoms of HIV. Because doctors don't want to touch these individuals. They're, they don't understand the disease. They're terrified by it. There's wasting syndrome, there's a lot of nausea, there's a lot of pain, but Brownie Mary and Dennis Perron find that if they feed a patient a brownie, and an hour later they start to have an appetite again, their nausea subsides, they have a little bit more energy, and they're able to actually start functioning again, this is a good thing. So by 1996, they engage in a lot of grassroots activism, and they get Proposition 215, the Compassionate Use Act, on the California ballot in 1996. And it passes. And California is the first state uh, in America to pass a medical marijuana law that allows doctors to recommend, not prescribe, but recommend the use of uh, cannabis for And this is quite extraordinary for for really any illness, but it's primarily focused on HIV, AIDS, glaucoma and cancer. And once that first law is passed and there is a recognition of cannabis's potential medical effects, it kind of opens up this groundswell of support for more movements within the states to allow the sick and the dying to access The use of this drug within a medical context. And so now I think we have, oh man, sometimes I get the numbers. I think it's 33 states Mm. that allow medical use, but it all started back in California in 96, primarily because of its combination with the gay rights and HIV AIDS movement. Thanks to Dennis Perron and Brownie Mary.
0: Wow. It's a really fascinating story. You know, it's, um, and and it sets sort of the stage establishes the conditions for um, important current debates I mean because this is we're in the rise right now Um, and so considering where we are in this phase um, I I mean it's obvious that you're contributing to like extraordinarily important contemporary discussions but um, you know if you had to put your book in the hands of someone one person who would it be I mean who is it that needs to read that book
1: Oh, I think everyone, <laughs> everyone <laughs> needs course. to buy it for friends, family members, everyone, everyone, <laughs> please feel free. What <laughs> but, but I, I think, you know, I, I don't think there's just one person who needs to read it, but I, I feel like anyone who wants to oversimplify this fight and say, yes, legalization is inevitable or no, legalization is a flash in the pan. I would appreciate it if they would read the history of, you know, these decades of marijuana activism that have shown that, that people get really, really passionate about this drug in ways that I don't see passion about any other substance. Um, I don't see the surrounding cocaine use. I don't see this surrounding uh, heroin use. I see it a little bit around psychedelics as, as, um, There's sort of this new movement uh, surrounding the use of psychedelics, especially in uh, the treatment of, you know, sort of uh, what's the word I mean, like Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, sort of the use of like medical use of of psychedelics and bringing them into therapeutic uses. I see (laughs) some of that, but it's not quite the same as cannabis. People get people are really passionate about this drug and i think anyone who believes that the story is told and that there's just one path that we're going to go down and that it's inevitable to go one way or the other i would really recommend that they familiarize themselves with how kind of labyrinthine this this the the history of this substance actually is it's gone back and forth over and over and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I just see the circumstances around these changes continually shifting to match the temper of the times.
0: So I wanna go maybe behind the curtain for a minute or two. Um, uh, So can you say a bit about some of the uh, sort of uh, behind the scenes work that went into writing your book, Grassroots?
1: Oh yeah, totally. That's the best part. I, I loved writing this book. It was so much fun. Um, The research was great. I did research at archives across the country. I was at the Reagan Library in um, California. I was at the National Archives and the Library of Congress uh, in DC, where I live. And I was getting a lot of stuff from people themselves. So, Mm. members of NORMAL, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, uh, who had been there since its founding since 1970, or they're active in the 80s, they were sending me. You know, pamphlets that they published in 1986, or, you know, PDFs of documents uh, from decades ago. I was in touch with parent activists uh, who, one, uh, Thomas Gleaton, whose nickname was Buddy. Everybody has nicknames in the parent movement which I, I don't know but yeah. part of me kind of wants a nickname now I'm yeah. like I don't have one I should have a nickname but uh he sent me a thumb drive with uh scanned copies of every single one of his parent organization's newsletters you know things that no other researcher had seen uh so I was able to get access to a lot of this material because people want their stories told mm-hmm. and they really do. And and to take these individuals seriously and say, no, I really do think you've contributed something very real and very important to American history. I mean, people who doesn't like to be flattered, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. So as I was getting this material, um, either from archives or personal archives. I did, uh, like I said, over two dozen interviews with everyone from former Carter administration members to activists on both sides. Uh, and I was able to just generate a lot of this material in order to tell the story. And that was really the best part, you know, because writing is a very lonely solipsistic activity. So it was me in my, my home office a lot but being able to connect with yeah, yeah lonely poor me play the yeah. violin uh but uh but being able to connect with with these people and, and tell their stories in uh in a way that I hoped would would get it right was great and the biggest joy i got after the book was published and and kind of in people's hands was that um, I got responses from people on both sides of the debate, people who are for decriminalization and legalization and people who are against it. And they both said that they appreciated how I told their story, that it was um, even handed in a way that um, maybe they weren't expecting, which uh, was kind of, you know, okay, good. I hope that I didn't disappoint anyone, uh, but also in a way that, that made me really uh, proud of the effort and, and talk, taught me a lot about how to uh, continue to do history into the future.
0: That's cool, um and you know what I, considering the work that you put in um, I, I have to ask for uh advice because um you produced a, a book that's accessible and it's you know it's thoughtful and so the advice uh what kind of advice do you give to younger researchers and writers uh you know people who are trying to get that first book out i mean what do you have thoughts for these folks
1: oh man um I hope so. (laughs) I hope I have thoughts for them. I mean, publication is, is a battle, uh, especially if you want to go commercial. Um, And it's, you know, it's definitely an industry where, where gatekeepers are still very prominent and very powerful. But if you believe in your idea, and you're really committed to it, and you're willing to put in the work of finding an agent and finding the right publisher and fighting for your, fighting for your project, um, it's completely worth it. But I would say for anyone who is interested in writing kind of like a a modern history, especially about people who are still alive, um, my best piece of advice is to reach out and contact those individuals. Uh, It can be super intimidating. I remember the first time I placed a phone call to to Keith Shuhart, I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, she's she's going to think I'm a weirdo, right? Like who is this random grad student calling her who found her number on whitepages.com. Uh, but it's really worth it. And and for the most part, people are so willing to talk. They're so honored to have their stories told. And you'll find out so much more from interviewing individuals who are involved with whatever project it is that you're investigating um, than you will just in the archives or just in whatever. So of course it can get messy. You're dealing with real people, uh, who may or may not like what you're eventually going to write, but the benefits of getting those stories and, and hearing it, you know, straight from the horse's mouth is they, they so overwhelm any potential pitfalls that that is definitely the advice I would give to anyone, you know, pursuing a project right now.
0: So what's next for you? I mean, what are you writing or what's the next project that you're researching?
1: My next project and my, my agent says that she's going to work on selling my proposal, uh, next month. So I'm super psyched about that. Yeah. So mama might get a paycheck who knows, um, (laughs) uh, is (laughs) the the history of the development of medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. Uh, so similar to grassroots, it's the story of the people who developed these substances, uh, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone, who were very involved in their development, who were very passionate about their development, who became particularly financially invested in their development, the people who are opposed to this development, and the story of essentially how we got to this point where there are three of these drugs that are now available for people struggling with OUD, opioid use disorder. Uh, all these drugs are over 50 years old, which is somewhat uh, troubling. Uh, And they're the only ones that are allowed. There is an enormous amount of restrictions over them. They are uh, oftentimes very price prohibitive. And how we got there is a story of passion and corruption and um, individuals. And so I'm really excited to tell that story as well. It will be, uh, I think I'm going to get a lot of flack on Twitter, but I'm excited about it. (laughs)
0: As long as you're up for it.
1: Hey, bring it on. Yep.
0: <laughs> Emily's the author of Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. It's a stimulating and topical work, and I recommend it greatly. And Emily, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Oh, Luke, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. It was a blast. Thanks.